Jesus's life is more than just this kind of transaction that enacts reconciliation and it definitely is not what some people probably critique as a perspective of a divine child abuse where Jesus takes on the wrath of God so that humanity can be saved from it and ultimately we can be reconciled to God. Um, It's just not in congruence with the broader narrative of scripture and who God is and God's love and plan to restore all things and reconcile all things through Christ, not through the punishment of Christ, but through the person and the sacrifice and the love of Jesus. Dominique Gilliard wrote this fabulous new book called Rethinking Incarceration, Advocating for Justice That Restores. Uh, Dominique is the Director of Racial Righteousness and Reconciliation for the Love, Mercy, Do Justice Initiative of the Evangelical Covenant Church. He's an ordained minister, previously serving in pastoral ministry in Oakland, Chicago, and Atlanta. I love this conversation with Dom, and his book picks up on the important work that Michelle Alexander started with the new Jim Crow, and then Brian Stevenson continued with Just Mercy. Uh, And Rethinking Incarceration by Dominique Gilliard calls the church to be the conscience again, as Dr. King stated, to the state, rather than the master or the servant of the state, to be the conscience. And uh, you're gonna love this conversation, I did. And uh, so without further ado, here's Dominique Gilliard. Well, I'm here uh, with my new friend, Dominique Gilliard. Hey, Dom, good to talk to you. Hey, Steve, I'm excited to be on with you. Oh, man, I've been looking forward to this as I've uh, paged through your book. Uh, I, I, I think it's such an important conversation to have, and I think it's really misunderstood by so many people, this idea of mass incarceration and uh, how that uh, really affects uh, our theology of justice and righteousness. And so let's get right into it. Uh, can you think about a time as a kid where you first noticed that you were interested in justice? <laughs> yeah. So my father, before the summer learning gap was a thing that people were aware of um, during the summer, he used to make us watch uh, and write book reports on the di- dichotomy is interesting. The Little House on the Prairie yeah. and the um, Eyes on the Prize documentaries. Oh, my gosh. And so before we got a chance to go out and play, uh, I was a baseball player. Um, so I played baseball religiously all my life. Um And before I could go to practice, before I could go play in the neighborhood with the kids, before I could do anything, I'd have to watch something every day and type up a book report and leave it on his desk to prove that I did it. And that that really kind of planted seeds for for uh, justice and a desire for an understanding of justice within my life. So that was very that was like middle school. Yeah. Um, where that started to happen. And I'd say for me personally, a more kind of something that happened on my own would just be some of the injustices that I saw, particularly around the ages uh, when, well, when I was 11, I had a very major racial incident happen and the apathy of people around me who are not African-American was very alarming and really planted some seeds as well. Do you want to tell that story or is it too long? 
Uh, it's it's a little lengthy. Um, so I'll just say uh, a friend of mine, uh, my best friend at the time, we were coming from, uh, we were playing a baseball game. We were doing a doubleheader in southern uh, rural part of Georgia. And we had ran across the street to go use the bathroom and the porta potty between games. Um, my friend was running back across the street. And as he ran across the street, his batting glove fell out fell out of the back uh, pocket. So he stopped and turned around to get it and he got hit by a car. Um, and the person, when they first realized that they hit somebody, was freaking out, was super nervous. They were super apologetic. And then they realized that they hit a young black boy. And then he said, nigger, you should get out of the street and learn how to cross the street properly oh. and got up and drove off. Um, and so the witnesses who were there and observed what happened, I was bewildered by the fact that no one wrote down the license plate. No one was, like, trying to reprimand the man. Um, and it was just a very apathetic response. I mean, people helped my friend afterwards, um, but I, I was expecting more and really enraged that more didn't happen. Well, yeah, and especially the the initial response, which was horror, and then when they realized yeah. it was a young black boy, to have that response change to judgment, anger, racism must have been uh, that. I mean, that must have been insane. Yeah. My gosh. Um, well, thanks for sharing that story because I think um, I, I think it sets the scene for what you write about and what you care about. Uh, and what you're working for in the world now. So um, I remember about 10 years ago, well, was it 10 years ago? It might not have been 10 years ago when someone first told me about the the New Jim Crow, the book by uh, Michelle Alexander. And uh, you talked about th that, that book and then Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson, uh, that your book sort of follows those two books, but then um, does something different. So can you just say a little bit about how it builds on the thoughts uh, put together on those two books and then how it's different? Yeah, so Michelle really was the whistleblower for this conversation. Uh, before Michelle's book, um, people in communities like the one I grew up in felt that something was wrong, knew that there was an absence of fathers, brothers, uncles, um, but we didn't really understand the broader system. Um, and so she really just names mass incarceration and helps give language to what we felt and knew what was going on for so long. Um, and so she really raised down and um, exquisitely breaks down the war on drugs, how it came to be, what the repercussions of the war have been, and the casualties, uh, where they are being enacted, and who is enduring the brunt of it. Um, so it builds on that. Um, and then Just Mercy, Brian Stevenson tells gut-wrenching story after gut-wrenching story around how broken our criminal justice system is and has these great quotes about how we presently have a system who that works better for you if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. Yeah. And he really like uh, helps us to understand the economic and racial um, discrepancies that are still inherent within our system. So it builds on both of those notions, uh, but it goes beyond them in that really 
Michelle and Brian focus on the war on drugs, and almost one could read it as them saying that the that mass incarceration is a byproduct of the war on drugs. Yeah. Um, but I make the argument that there are really five pipelines that are funneling people into mass incarceration today, being the war on drugs, the school to prison pipeline, the deinstitutionalization of mental health facilities, the privatization of prisons and how lucrative private prisons have become. And then uh, the school to, uh, oh, the war on immigration. Yeah. I say that there's been a parallel war to the war on drugs that's been launched on immigration, uh, funding, allocated do- dollars, um, the level of law enforcement that are recruited and employed specifically to patrol the border, very much so parallels the war on drugs. We just haven't coined the phrase the war on immigration yet. Right, exactly. And I think, you know, for people keeping track, people listening, uh, I think the the horrific white narrative of the absent father uh, narrative in the in the black community, uh, most white fee- people do not put uh, two and two together about the war on drugs and mass incarceration, but instead they sort of double down on this idea, this racist idea that oh black fathers just um, just leave their families and go do something else. Do you know what I mean? And it's, yeah, yeah. And I think, um, so that's a huge issue. But when I first learned about the privatization of the prisons and how companies are actually profiting at great levels because uh, that they employ prisoners, um, I freaked out. And that was very recently. So can you talk a little bit about when that happened and why that is kept so under wraps? Yeah, but before I do, I'm going to mention two other things. Okay, um, good, good. The, uh, the main distinction between my book, though, in addition to those, is that my book centers this conversation for the church. Yep, yep. Um, and it explores mass incarceration through a biblical theological lens. Um, and so the whole second half of my book looks at the history of the church's engagement with mass incarceration, uh, what we've done right, what we've done wrong, how we can do it better. Um, so that's the major distinction. The other thing, when you talk about the narrative of absentee fathers, one thing that's really critical is that too much of this conversation historically around mass incarceration has exclusively revolved around men. Yeah. But the reality is that women are the fastest growing populace within our state and federal prisons throughout the nation. And actually the number of women who are incarcerated in our nation has been increasing at a rate of 50% higher than men since 1980. Wow. So what you're going to actually about to start to hear is this new narrative of the absentee mother, yeah. because there's also 80% of women who are locked up in jails throughout our nation are mothers. And so you're really about to hear within the next couple of years, a new narrative about the absentee mother. Um, but to go to your question about privatization of prisons, um, in 1980 was the first time where we really started to realize we were coming into a watershed moment. Uh, because of the number of people who were being incarcerated for the war on drugs, we were literally running out of state, uh, space within our state and federal facilities to incarcerate people. There was just no more room. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, we knew that we had to ask ourselves a question. 
And the question was, were we going to embrace diversion programs? Were we going to look at resentencing? Or are we going to question the validity of mandatory minimums? Or were we going to do what we ultimately decided to do, which is to hire a third party to build private prisons so we can continue to incarcerate people at the exact same rate, um, but just not in a way that was controlled by the state and federal um, government. And so in 1984, you get the first private prison that's built in Tennessee. Um, and because of that, the incarceration rates uh, ex are really exacerbated from that point on. And we have a reality now in our nation where we presently have more prisons, jails, and detention centers than we do degree-granting institutions oh in our gosh. nation. And because of that, in many parts of the country, there are more people who are living behind bars than are living on college campuses. And to give you an example of how this breaks down on a smaller level, in the state of California, since 1980, they've built 22 new prisons and one new degree-granting institution. Hmm. And so that's how we kind of got into this watershed, seminal moment that we find ourselves in with mass incarceration today. My gosh. So the war on drugs and then um, the war on immigration, again, that hasn't been coined yet, but we can see that happening. Uh, would you call that a, like a continuing systematic um, form of systemic racism um, that um, people in power put in place by, uh, okay, let me, let me stop. Because the war on drugs, I think I read in your book, it wasn't like in, in the 70s when Nixon first started that and then in the 80s when Reagan um, really brought it, brought it into um, kind of what it became. Isn't it true that like there, there wasn't really this massive drug problem? There was. Not at all. Right? Not at all. Yeah, they, they polled the nation and they asked citizens what were the issues that they were most concerned about in the war and drugs didn't even register in the top five. Right. Um, when they actually were looking at the, the abuse of drugs at the time, there was not this great astronomical rise in drugs. But what you did have was you had crack that was first coming on the scene. Yeah. Um, and there was this sensationalization around crack and what it did to people when they took the drug. Now, I'm not trying to minimize how drugs can impact our behavior and our health and our society. But I do want people to take a realistic look at the narratives that surrounded the crack epidemic and the narrative that's going on right now surrounding the opioid yep. epidemic. Yep. And literally, the abuse is the same. The addiction is the same. The only thing that's different is who's being addicted um, and who is actually the victim of kind of the effects of the drugs. So crack was black people. Um, right now with the opioid epidemic, it's white people. And the media depicted crack users as sinister, violent, super predators that we needed to keep ourselves safe from and protect our children and our communities from. And the media right now is depicting opioid addicted individuals as people we should have sympathy and empathy for. And they're saying that it's a public health crisis. 
And so we just need to have an honest conversation about the role of race and how we ultimately narrate what's going on in our society. Now, I want to say I, across the board, agree with the approach we're taking now because the vast majority of people who are locked up in our nation's prisons and jails are people who have either mental impairment or chemical addictions that need medical interventions and not incarceration. But we do need to be explicitly clear about the role that race is playing and how that narration of what's going on is taking place. Thank you so much for that. I think that is such a helpful um, comparison because that's what should have happened back in the 70s and 80s, right? I mean, that's how we should have dealt with uh, the crack epidemic back then as a mental health issue versus, I mean, and I read in your book, so a 1995 survey went out and it was this question, close your eyes, envision a drug user and describe that person to me. And nearly every person uh, described uh, a person of color, right? Describe 95%. a black person. Yeah. 95%. Yep. So um, th- that just underscores this, this sinister messaging, <laughs> this especially racist messaging. When, especially when uh, we know that there have been study after study that prove that white people are not only more prone to use drugs, but also to sell drugs. Exactly. Um, and so if we have this factual data, but we still believe and have been socialized by the media to see images of black people and increasingly brown people when we think about drug association, um, we, we just need to have a more sincere dialogue about how that came to be. Yeah. I mean, yes, 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 yes. Okay, I want to, I do want to talk about the church because I think you have some really important things to say about how our understanding of penal substitutionary atonement theory uh, has to do with our understanding of justice and as it relates to imprisonment. Uh, But you quoted Dr. King, and I love this quote, the church must remember that it is not the master or servant of the state, but rather the conscience of the state. Uh, say say more about about that. Yeah, King was really um, saying that as the church, we have a different way of engaging critical conversations like mass incarceration. Yeah. Um, when we think about um, this conversation about justice, I, I repeatedly um, suggest throughout the book that God's justice is not inherently uh, retributive or punitive, but it's ultimately about restoration. Yes, yes. Um, And if we as Christians really want to take a biblical approach to a conversation of how do you respond to violation or wrong or crime, uh, we have to always start with the way that God responded to our sin and our wrong in the person through the incarnation of Jesus who comes to us while we were yet enemies of God, while we were still sinners, while before we got our stuff together and was willing to die on the cross for our sins. And so in when we when we understand that we literally are only Christians because of the grace of God, then that grace must hallmark our lives. And that grace must be something that we're willing to extend to other people when we consider what it looks like to actually hold people accountable for the wrongs that they commit. And so I I always want to be clear, 
there must be accountability for people's wrong actions, for criminal activity. But that accountability cannot be dehumanizing. It should not be isolating in a way that does not have a tangible plan for healthy reintegration. And it has to be something that affirms the humanity and the Mago Day that is inherent in each individual. Amen. And I think, again, that's why, that's why actually, Dom, I really love your book, because it takes a really bold theological stance on how it is that the church can be the conscience of the state right now versus sort of um, supporting it. Or, I mean, there's been such a conflation between white evangelicals and um, things like pro-death penalty. Pro, like, it's, it's amazing that we, that we um, don't have a better understanding of restoration uh, as a part of justice versus, and, and that's why you do write about the penal substitutionary atonement theory sort of building into that uh, narrative that God's justice is about punishment. Can you talk more about that and, 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 and how that plays into it? Yeah, so, and this is, I really encourage people to take some time to read through um, that section yep. because I can't fully do it uh, justice in this time. But I think for me, it's critical for us to really explore what we believe is going on in the cross event. Um, it's clear that because of sin, we were unable to faithfully give God what was due to God. Mm. Um, but the question I really want to ask is what was due to God? What was uh, what were we insufficiently giving God? Um, and my belief is that sin prohibits us from giving God the praise, honor, and adoration uh, through our lives and the way that we relate to our neighbor, um, And as opposed to what was insufficient was that God had this wrath and this anger that was stored up towards us as humanity because of our sin. And God needed to pour that wrath out onto something so that God could love us again. Um, I think it's really critical to, to understand that, you know, scripture tells us that, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son. And that love is really what inspired cross to, uh, Christ to endure the cross on our behalf. Um, but it also is about how do we not take the person of Jesus and reduce Jesus's life down to this one moment and say the only thing that mattered about Jesus was that transaction um, that allowed reconciliation to be possible. Um, so I, I think sometimes the way that we've taught penal, penal, uh, sorry, penal substitution really has been a reductionist theology that really marginalizes uh, the significance of Jesus's embodied life, mm -hmm. uh, Jesus's uh, calling and sending of the disciples, Jesus's baptism, Jesus's proclamation in Luke that he came to give new, good news to the poor, uh, Jesus's, you know commissioning of the great commission that the church is supposed to live into. Um, Jesus's life is more than just this kind of 
transaction that enacts reconciliation and it definitely is not what some people probably critique as a perspective of a d- d- divine child abuse yeah. where Jesus takes on the wrath of God so that humanity can be saved from it and ultimately we can be reconciled to God. Um, it's just not in congruence with the broader narrative of scripture and who God is and God's love and plan to restore all things and reconcile all things through Christ, not through the punishment of Christ, but through the person and the sacrifice and the love of Jesus. Man, now you're preaching. Come on now. (laughs) Come on now. Um, I love what you wrote in your book. And again, the book is called Rethinking Incarceration, uh, Advocating for Justice That Restores. And Dominique writes, uh, I, I think brilliantly, you write about Zacchaeus in Luke 19. And about how, um, you know, Zacchaeus is uh, benefiting enormously on the backs of the poor. He is corrupt, uh, but salvation, Jesus, which means salvation, comes to his house. And there's a restoration that happens that results in the restoration of Zacchaeus, his community, because he pays back four times. Um, And then you write, so ultimately through Zacchaeus' restoration to God, himself, his victims, and his community, then Jesus declares, today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham, because Christ embodies a sacramental ethic, you write, of love, justice, and restoration. Zacchaeus experiences true, holistic salvation. The man who was once a criminal, cut off from his people, and excluded from membership and covenant community, is now reconnected to the family of God. And again, like that, I, I think that uh, that exposition of that uh, just underscores what you just said. It's like we can't reduce uh, salvation to um, only personal. Uh, uh, and I think when we do, we the gospel is impoverished um, big time. Uh, and <laughs> I think the rich are allowed to stay rich and the poor <laughs> are allowed to stay poor because that's how that's how power works. Um, yeah, when when salvation is just personal, it does not have the transformative power to uh, reconcile the world to God. Uh, we are called to be agents and co-laborers, uh, agents of reconciliation and co-laborers for Christ in the world in a way that we are really in the mode of John the Baptist paving the way for the return of the Lord. And when stuff is just a personal um, salvific moment, I always say the cross is where reconciliation transpires. Mm -hmm. And the cross has two dimensions. It's the vertical and the horizontal. And if your church is only, uh, or your discipleship is only calling you to uh, reconciliation with you and God that has no implications for you and your neighbor, then it's not the gospel. Yeah, The gospel is the both and. Yep. That's good. Uh, okay, you got time for two more questions. I mean, I feel like I have a hundred more, but we're running out of time. You got time for two more? I do. Let's do it. How has the church responded to crime and punishment historically? <laughs> I mean, that's I know that's you. You laugh because that's yeah. such a big question, but but <laughs> you're like, we don't have time to answer that question. Um. So I, I'm gonna I'm gonna focus here on evangelicals yeah. uh, with that question. Thank you. Um, and say that I think what has happened is that 
there has been a misappropriation of the Romans uh, 13 um, text. And uh, I mean, we just saw this with yeah. Jeff, Jeff Sessions. Yeah. Um, we saw this back in the day uh, with to legitimate slavery. Yeah. Um, there has been this misappropriation of the text that calls us to submit to uh worldly authorities irrespective of what they call us to even when they call us to something that is in direct um opposition to the gospel and in that call or that affirmation um from the church theologically we've really set up our members to uh live lukewarm lives that are not faithful to christ yeah and so as Christians, you know, I say we rarely question things like what it means to pledge our allegiance to anything other than God or how neatly our faith can fit within a particular political party, uh, due in large part to a kind of muddling of patriotism and Christianity. Being a good citizen for many is equivalent to being a good Christian. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to raise what happens when patriotism opposes what Scripture tells us faithfully following Christ entails. Um, this is a real question and it has profound implications for uh, mass incarceration, our civic engagement, our allegiance to um, things like law and order, get tough on crime, three strikes you're out, support of the death penalty, all of these things that really are antithetical to the gospel, yeah. uh, as particularly the gospel of grace um, that we know has really welcomed us into the family of God. And so I just wanted to um, raise how theologically um, we have legitimated a kind of punitive approach uh, to this question that has really led us astray from bearing witness in a way that's truly in accordance with the gospel of Jesus yeah. Christ. Yeah. So good. And again, I just want to say, I, I know I've said this before, but that's what's so powerful about your book is it is a, it's a historical look at black codes. We didn't even get to that. Um, <laughs> war on drugs, these, these five pipelines, um, but it's also such a robust call for the church to re-examine some of what we've been socialized to believe in, especially the white evangelical church, um, that, that, that we need to take a look at how much of what we call Christianity is actually a socialized view um, that, is, that is less biblical and more... Um, you, you, I mean, I don't, I don't want to say Republican or Democrat, but um, more political. Let's just say political. Right. Yeah. Right. Good. Because I think one of the one of the things I wanted to be very intentional about in my book is this is not about a Republican or Democratic agenda. Um, both parties are implicated in mass incarceration. Mm -hmm. Both parties have used law and order rhetoric for political expediency. Both parties have exacerbated the punitive nature of our criminal justice system and have taken away restorative elements that actually used to allow people to be able to get a college degree or different things that were really equip people to return to society as productive members of society. Yes. And so it's not a politically partisan. Um, this is a broader call for us to go back to the biblical text and recenter this question in a way 
that I really wanted to say that instead of supporting a system that merely punishes, Christians must pursue a justice system that reveals community, affirms human dignity, and seeks God's shalom. Um, the church really has the power to help transform our criminal justice system. But the truth is, if reconciled communities are ever to become the true aim of our justice system, the church must lead the way in advocating for systems that give opportunities for authentic rehabilitation, lasting transformation, and healthy reintegration. Uh, we're not all called to the same thing, but we are all called to something. Every congregation, every individual Christian has a role to play. That's good. That's good. Uh, well, friends, uh, we are out of time, uh, but Rethinking Incarceration, Advocating for Justice that Restores Dominique Gilliard. And uh, one of the first stories he tells in this book is, uh, and, and, and I love that how you how you wove this into it. But but you first got to know folks that were previously incarcerated when as a oh. as a pastor, you were um, like you were appointed to talk to some of these guys about healthy sexuality, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and and you sort of beautifully tell tell the story about how you were sort of freak, freaked out about that. You didn't know what to expect, uh, but then you were like so uh, surprised by how how sincere these these men were right and that's uh that that just puts such a human face on um on what you then go on to write about so thank you for for being personally involved in this um, yeah and uh, that that story was very much transformative and i t i oftentimes say that you know we don't know about the dehumanizing realities that are going on and behind bars because we don't go we yep. don't know because we don't go yep. and i wanted to really be intentional and we can close with this um about making a direct connection between uh scripture and incarceration because there is a direct correlation um most people don't really rest reckon with the fact that four of the books of our bible colossians philemon ephesians and philippians were all written in prison um, and we definitely don't reckon with the fact that if you were to take all incarcerated people out of the biblical text, there literally is no gospel. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, John the Baptist, who was called to pave the way for Jesus, Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, Peter, who Jesus said to him, upon this rock, I will build my church, Samson, Hananiah, the seer, Joseph, Malachi, Stephen, Jeremiah, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Silas, all criminals. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that's not even to mention other people who committed criminal offenses who sh should have been incarcerated just weren't, i.e. David and yep. Moses, yep. both murderers. Yeah, <laughs> so, absolutely. You know, and, and so I, I think, and, and, you know, and I say murderers with air quotes because I think one of the real things we need to get away from is forever defining people by the worst thing they've ever done. Yeah. Someone who has committed murder is not a murderer. There's somebody who committed a murder. And so your identity does not, you know, just imagine the worst thing you've ever done if people called you that for the rest of your life. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's awful. Yeah, I know exactly. Um, well, uh, I, I am loving your book. Uh, I can't wait for this to this podcast to get out there because I think you're someone who's really working um, to humanize um, 
humanity again. And I think that's the way that that love wins. That's the gospel. When we understand each other's stories and we understand that we're not just statistics or we're not just the worst thing we've ever done. Uh, it's such an important thing you're doing. So thanks, Dom, so much. Uh, it's a privilege to finally get a little time with you. You know, we're in the same denomination, but there's so much yeah. going on that it's hard to <laughs> hard, hard to sit down and get some time. Uh, sure. So, man, I, I appreciate you and your work now in Chicago, and um, I'm just cheering you on. Thanks so much. I really appreciate you having me on and this platform that you're creating for these kind of dialogues. Thanks, Dom. Okay, Rethinking Incarceration, Advocating for Justice That Restores... Dominique Gilliard, go out and buy the book, my friends. And uh, Dom, peace to you, my friend. Thanks for taking time. Same thing to you, brother. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to This Good Word. If you love this podcast, there's three ways that you can support my work. One is by jumping on Patreon, patreon.com slash thisgoodword. You can become a patron at various levels and get lots of good free stuff, including free tickets to any live events that I do, signed books, and other stuff. The second way is to share your favorite episodes via Twitter and Facebook, uh, email, however it is that you share content. Let some friends know that you love it. And then third is to go on iTunes and leave a rating or a review. So thanks so much, my friends. We are dust and breath. We are limited and limitless. We are human and holy, and we are in it together.